You are listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Amanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. Father God, I do thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would use your word mightily in us, that you would change us this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In our passage, we see the disciples are about to have something new. Jesus has been teaching them in Matthew's gospel who he is. Bit by bit, he's been revealing to them something of who he is. Now, the disciples haven't always got it. At times, no matter how clearly Jesus speaks, they just seem not to understand it. And then, in the passage we read last week, there was a change. Peter made this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus revealed that it wasn't any amount of teaching that could get him to that conclusion. It wasn't any person that could make him understand that. But it was the Father who had revealed that to him. As we see in John 17 and verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people, this is Jesus speaking to his Father, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And now and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so the disciples, by the Holy Spirit, have understood lesson one. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so now as we begin our passage this morning, Jesus is about to begin the class Discipleship 102. This is the lesson two of this curriculum that Jesus is leading his disciples through. He's going to start teaching them why he came. They understand who he is, and now they are ready to deal with questions. Why did he come? What did he come to do? And so Jesus gives them a preview of Jerusalem. It's a story that now in hindsight is familiar to us, how Judas would betray him, how he would suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders and eventually die and then conquer death and rise again victorious. This is the plan of redemption. And it is the reason why the word became flesh. This is the reason for which the Christ, the Messiah, that the disciples now know he is, this is the reason why he came to accomplish this task. But it's at this point that Peter takes him aside, as we see in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Well, we'll have to give Peter the benefit of the doubt as to what his intentions were. But he's misunderstood something. He's just realized that this is the Christ. 
And so in his mind, well, the Christ can't be doing this. This isn't what the Christ is supposed to be doing. We've been waiting for the Christ, and now you're telling us that he's going to die. This is not what's supposed to happen. I'm sure Peter would have learned from all the people around him as a good little Jewish boy what they expected from the Christ. And we see that in Luke, when the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, they say that we expected that he was the one who was coming to redeem Israel, and now he's dead, and the people are disappointed because it's not what they expected. This language that Peter uses is a strong rebuke. In our text, it's translated, far be it from you, Lord. But literally, it would be something like, mercy on you, or God be merciful to you. Or maybe how we would say it in English today is, God forbid, this is never going to happen. Well, at least not while Peter's around. Peter and the rest of the disciples, the rest of the Jewish nation, We're looking for a king, someone who would come and take the throne and lead the nation of Israel into peace and prosperity. We see that in the incident of in John where he feeds the 5,000 and they immediately want to take him and make him king by force. You could say in a sense that they want the best life now. Their understanding of the Christ is that he's going to bring the ideal life now. And through Peter's wording, we also get an understanding of what his idea of mercy is. He thinks that mercy would be for God to spare Jesus all of the suffering. For God to let Jesus just take the throne right now and enable him to bring about this perfect life under his rule. Jesus turns to Peter and he counters Peter's rebuke with a more strong language. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is making a distinction between a human way of thinking and God's way of thinking. Peter is still thinking, he's got his mind set on the natural way things happen. He's thinking life leads to life, death is death, mercy takes away the obstacles to the best life now. It's the natural human way of thinking. But he hasn't understood that Jesus is trying to teach him Something greater. He's trying to reveal God's plan to him. And he's so far missed God's plan that now he's actually getting in the way of Jesus teaching this to the other disciples. From verse 24 onwards, Jesus begins to lay out exactly how God's plan works, how it's different to human way of thinking. We see in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the way to become a disciple. To deny yourself, take your cross, and follow Jesus. This word deny means to disown, to cast off. 
it's not the way we had often used the phrase self-denial, like I denied myself of a chocolate ice cream. This is a total death to self. The best example that we have in Scripture of this kind of denying is, of course, Peter when he denied the Lord. It's to say, I don't even know this man. This is the language that is being used here. He also speaks about this cross that we need to bear. And this cross isn't... Well, the language of the cross is used in many different ways as we throw it around. Some people would say, well, my husband or my wife or whoever was a bit grumpy today, that, that was the cross I had to bear today. I had a little bit of trouble with my employer. That was the cross I had to bear today. Jesus here is talking about something different, something deeper. This is total death to oneself. This is dying to self, to sin, to Satan, dying to death and to hell. We'll see exactly how this works in a moment. Also note that Jesus says, anyone who desires to come after me. This is the only way. He's not talking about it being a way. This is whoever would come after me. The only way to become a disciple is through being, is through death. This cross. The way that God's math works is what Peter had missed. This is the things of God that Jesus was describing earlier. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To our logic, it's backwards. And yet what Jesus is saying, life equals death. Death equals life. Also notice here in verse 25 that Jesus is not only talking about a special class of martyrs, whoever loses his life for my sake. Because once again, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will, for my sake will find it. He's not talking only about someone who is literally slaughtered for their faith. He's talking about a death that we all have to die in order to come to him. Jesus moves on and he asks a rhetorical question in verse 26. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Some translations might say soul. It's actually the same word here, soul slash life. And so this first question is not very difficult to answer. The answer is, Nothing. Could all the wealth in the world buy any more life? Of course not. Could the richest person in the world with $250 billion, will that wealth change anything when his time comes to die? But Jesus' second question is not so easy to answer. Or what shall a man give in return for his life? 
How would you answer this? What would you give in return for your life? Well, there are two ways to think about this question. One is the things, it's thinking about it through the way that man looks at it. It's the things of man. People spend their lifetime trying to buy more or a better life. Always trying to somehow find life. And yet nothing that a person can do can add a single day to the life that they've been given. The most that a person can do is make their life more comfortable for the short days that they have. But hang on. There's a different way to think about this question. What will a man give in return for his life? Then we need to ask, well, what would buy a person's life? What would that price be? What about another life? And what if the man was a man with a capital M? This is what Jesus has been describing all the way since verse 21. He is the one who gives his life for your life. His death becomes your death. This is the entrance to new life. If we return quickly to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is to share in Christ's death and also to share in his resurrection. You see, this wisdom of God, this plan of God, no matter how paradoxical it is, it all becomes clear in the cross. At the cross, Jesus wins life through death. And he invites us to join him in his death and then partake in the eternal life that he won. Peter thought that mercy would be for Jesus to be saved from suffering. And yet he didn't understand that Jesus was preparing to carry out the greatest act of mercy that anyone has ever seen. If we were to read this in Luke's Gospel, there's another dimension to this phrase, take up your cross. It's, Luke says, take up your cross daily. In this sense, we see that this death happens every day. How does that happen? Well, let's turn quickly to 1 Peter in chapter 4. This is a Peter who's now filled with the Holy Spirit and a little bit more matured, reflecting on what Jesus has taught him, and this is what he has to say in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Note that phrase, the the way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in a sense, he is saying, set your mind not on the things of man, but on the things of God. 
He's saying exactly what Jesus was trying to teach him back in Matthew. With respect, the time is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what Peter is describing is this process that we call sanctification. The more you trust in Christ, the more you rest in and rely on the work that he has done, the death that he has died for you, the life that he gives by you taking on his death and taking on his life. The more that happens, the Holy Spirit works in you to put to death the desires you once had. You were joined to Christ in his death once, and you are being joined to him more and more every day as the gifts that he has given you shape you into his likeness. Every day you become a living sacrifice, loving and serving God and letting that flow outward into your neighbor. It's like what Paul describes in Romans 6, where he says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There's another application that we can take out of this idea of bearing your cross. And it also comes up in 1 Peter 4 and in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So as you take on Christ's death and the life that you live is now Christ's life, you get to share in Christ's sufferings. As you share in Christ's life and his sufferings, first of all, it's not a surprise because Christ suffered and you're sharing in his life. But also, you're no longer concerned about how to save this life. You've died to this life. You're alive with Christ. And so if perhaps one day you were to stand on a table with a rope around your neck and your captors said to you, curse Jesus or otherwise we'll kick the table out from under you. It's not easy, but it's impossible to stand if you're seeking to save this life. It's only possible if that life has died and you're now in Christ's life, sharing in Christ's sufferings. And yet also, you don't have to seek to be in that situation for your suffering to be worthwhile. 
Maybe it's sharing the gospel with someone who rejects you. Maybe it's a colleague, a neighbor, who when you reach out to them, will think badly of you or persecute you. And this suffering is worthwhile because you're sharing in Christ's life. We'll end with Jesus' promise in verse 27 of our passage. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. When Jesus has accomplished his purpose in dying and being raised, then he will come back in glory. The Son of Man will return in judgment. Now this promise, depending on the way you look at it, could either be terrifying or comforting. But it's also helpful to note that this phrase, according to what he has done, is not speaking about individual deeds. This word is talking about a path, a course, a a way that you follow. And so for those who have not died with Christ, taking his death on themselves, this payment becomes recompense for a lifetime of sin, of rebellion against God, a holy and good God. But for those who have lost their lives, for Christ's death, and have taken Christ's life on them, this is a foretaste of glory. For them, this payment that they will receive is the payment that Christ himself earned. And so for you, mercy and life come through death. Jesus takes your life and gives up his for you. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.